Well, praise be to God for the reading of his word. And we now turn our attention to what was our Old Testament text this morning. Uh, the story of David and Goliath. Again, a familiar text. So we're in some stories that are familiar to us. Uh, most of us know the story of David and Goliath. Even if we don't know the Bible really well, uh, it's it's a cultural reference that most of us know. Now, we've been in a in an affirmation. We've been in a series going all the way back uh, really into the fall to the season of Advent where we began a look at Christ in the Old Testament, thinking how to read the Old Testament in the light of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then how to look at the work of Christ in light of the Old Testament. And so we've been doing that, and we've even been choosing texts that fit with the liturgical calendar. So during the season of Lent, in preparation for Good Friday and for Easter, we looked at several Old Testament texts that were uh, focused on the sacrifice that was coming. And now that we've gone through Good Friday and Easter Sunday, we want to take a few more texts that talk about the victory of the coming king, the victory of the one that the Lord would provide. So we're going to keep in this Old Testament theme uh, for a few more weeks, and then we'll at some point begin a study in a new book. But for now, we're jumping around the Old Testament, looking at these pictures of Christ, thinking through how to read the Old Testament again in the light of Jesus Christ and not independently of him. It's not an independent story, and then Jesus pops in. It's a story that's all preparing the groundwork and laying the, the path, the tracks, if you will, for Jesus Christ, so that when he comes, we understand what he's doing. And it's a condemnation upon those who, when Jesus came, they did not understand. They had misread, if you will, the story. And I'm not being overly judgmental on them. It's, it's something that we all, uh, we all are in danger of if we're not reading it properly through the lens of Jesus Christ. So we come to this familiar text today, the story of David and Goliath. And if there is any story in the Old Testament that, that is a good test for you and for me as to how we read the Old Testament, it's this story. Because the story of David Goliath is not only Goliath is not only familiar to us, but it's used so often in Sunday school stories, especially for our kids, themes for uh, uh, for VBS and so forth. Uh, it is a story that is often moralized and given to our children and to all of us as a story whose primary lesson, if we could boil it down, is be like David. Be like David, right? When you face your giants, you should be like David. Find those five smooth stones, whatever they are, you put your trust in the Lord and you slay your giant, the great enemy. Now, as I will tell you, as we look at this text this morning, that's not, that's not wrong. It's just not the point of the text. There's a greater point to this text, and that's what we want to come to. There is a real treasure in this text, and the treasure is not a moral tale or a moral exhortation, though the moral exhortation is true. But we want to make sure that we don't let the moral exhortation to be like David, to have the faith of David, to have the courage of David, that we don't let that moral exhortation cause us to miss what is the treasure of the text. I have in my head, I think my dad might even be watching this, but I have in my head, I remember as a kid, my dad, I don't know if it was a song. I know he'll correct me later. Or he'll tell me later what it is. But I remember this line coming out of my dad's uh, mouth when I was a kid. He said, I overlooked an orchid while looking for a rose. I overlooked an orchid while searching for a rose. I think that's what the line goes. Uh, and I, I, I think that's the thing that we have to be careful of here. Right, that we don't go looking for a truth and miss the orchid that's right there before us. There's an orchid, there's a treasure that is there for us in this text. And sometimes our be like David mentality can 
get in the way of it. Now, don't get me wrong. The Bible is full of moral exhortations, and, and that's important. I, again, that's why I don't want to diminish this. The Bible is full of moral exhortations, but again, they are not the point of the Bible. Christ is the point of the Bible. And moral exhortations are like the frame around Christ, right? Moral exhortations expose to us our desperate need of Christ, so we need moral exhortations. We come to them, we hear the word of God, give us commands, and we are reminded in that how badly we need a savior. So yes, moral exhortation is there, commands are there, but they frame the work of Christ. And then on the other side of Christ, they teach us and guide us as how to live in the light of what Christ has done. We read that in Colossians chapter two today, right? That we're supposed to live in the new man. We're supposed to live in that circumcision, if you will, made without hands in the death of Christ. All of those calls to live as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ are there, moral exhortation. But again, they are the frame around the picture. The picture is Jesus Christ. The point of the Bible is that Christ is supremely excellent, that Christ is worthy of all praise and honor, that Christ is all sufficient for all of our needs. That is the point of the Bible. And if we walk away from any story of the Bible with a try harder, you can do it, be like so-and-so, as true as those things are, if that's the primary thing we walk away with, then we've missed something, right? Then we're in danger of being like Israel at the time when Christ came and failing to recognize the glory of the Savior that's right there in front of us, right? They overlooked an orchid while searching for a rose. They were looking for obedience and they missed the king that was right there in their presence at the time of Jesus coming. So let's consider this in the story of David and Goliath. Again, a very familiar story. So let us come to it. And I want to just point out four things to us. And even though I didn't read the full text to you this morning, you know the story. And so we can, we can lean on that a little bit. And if you don't, then go ahead back and read 1 Samuel 17. Four things I want to consider in the story. First, the unbeatable enemy. As the story gets into it, we know that Israel is facing these Philistines. I mean, I don't know if it, for some reason, reading it through, even just this morning, I was amazed by how many times uh, you know, we're told about the Philistine. Almost every verse mentions the word Philistine, right? Israel was dealing with this Philistine problem. The Philistines were like the nagging enemy. They're hanging on around Israel. God had given Israel the land of Canaan. He told them it was going to be theirs. But when they came into the land under the leadership of Joshua, they did not fully obey the word of the Lord. They didn't fully cast out all their enemies. They kind of settled for what they had thus far and tried to deal with it. And the Lord said, well, because of your disobedience, I'm going to let these enemies kind of hang around and nag you and nag you and nag you. You're never going to be free from them, or at least not until I send my champion. And so the Philistines have been here, this nagging enemy. And when we get to our story here now with David, the Philistine problem has kind of boiled up now to a head. And they have brought their ringer out. Right? They, they, this is the moment in which it's all going to be laid on the line. Let's fight for all the marbles. And they present their champion. You present your champion. Let's go ahead and deal with this mano and mano, one on one, and we'll play for all the marbles. And if we, the Philistines, win, then you will become our slaves. If you win, <laughs> you can't win. But if you win, then you, uh, we will be your slaves but you're not going to win because we have this amazing champion. We have a ringer. We've got a nine foot giant <laughs> named Goliath. And there he is standing at the edge of the brook. And he's barking across the brook to the host of Israel saying, come on, bring it on. Where's your champion? 
Let's go. We'll play for we'll play for keeps here. We'll play for all the marbles. So it's kind of come to a head here in this battle between Israel and the Philistines. And they've got somebody who, let's face it, is unbeatable, at least from the perspective of the army of Israel. And we'll get to them in a second. But this this enemy, this Goliath, looks pretty serious. And Israel, the army is all there knocking their knees and peeing their pants as they're thinking, who of us is going to go and face this giant? I don't know if it's appropriate to say peeing your pants when you're preaching a sermon, but so it is. I've said it. Now, this is something we have to come to grips with when we're dealing with this text. Again, if we're going to locate the treasure of this text, then we have to come to grips with this. The picture is really daunting. You and I are not up against a really tough enemy. You and I are up against what is, from our perspective, an unbeatable enemy. In fact, as you heard Mark pray earlier, really a triad of enemies that are against us. And frankly, you can't beat any of them, nor can I. But we are against the enmity of sin. I mean, who, who listening to me today or who in the world today? is winning the battle in sin, right? Who has won it? Who is the victor and the champion among us today who can say, yep, I've beat it, no more. And if you are, talk to me. You're going to have to email me. You're deluded. None of us has beat the enemy of sin. We constantly are in this battle, wrestling daily. That's why Paul says every day we've got to mortify the deeds of the flesh. Like every day we've got to get up and go to war against this thing because we ourselves are not able to put it down. We're up against the enemy of Satan. <laughs> Again, who amongst us is equipped and prepared to stand up and to fight Satan on our own strength? Of course, in Christ, resist him and he will flee. But we're asking of ourselves here. We want to get to see our need for Christ by wrestling in and of ourselves. Who of us is able to stand against the great accuser? And then finally, the great enemy of death. Of course, who of us is able to overcome that enemy? We know that the sword of Damocles hangs over our head. It doesn't matter where we are and how well we're doing. I mean, again, this is one of the, the dangers of even getting through this corona thing, right? We all have this, this nagging fear. We're hearing the anecdotes and the stories about the people who have had it. And we're wondering, well, what if I get it? Do I have underlying conditions? Am I the most vulnerable? What if it happens to me? What if it happens to these people I love, right? We're, we have that hanging over us. And when eventually it breaks, and it will break, just like all these other terrible things break, who knows how long it will take, but it will break. And when it does, we're going to have a certain feeling of like life. <laughs> it's going to be like, yes, we've overcome that threat. But does anybody think we've overcome the threat of death? I mean, I don't want to be morbid. I don't want to depress you on this glorious Sunday. But you're going to die. We're up against an enemy, let's face it, that from our perspective is unbeatable. That's the reality. And until we come to grips with this, we will never have Christ at the center of our lives. Until we come to grips with the fact that we are in such a desperate condition, Christ will never be at the center. He will always be on the periphery of our lives. He will be like a mascot. You know, he'll be like a good luck coin you kind of keep in your pocket. Maybe you take it out and rub it every now and then when you're really in trouble. You're in the foxhole. You cry out to him. But he will not be central to you if you do not know the enemy that you are up against. And you and I, like Israel, is up against an unbeatable enemy. So the first point, first recognition here is we are up against an unbeatable enemy. 
The second thing that we want to point out in this text, as we have it here, is that there's a pretty unimpressive army that has to deal with this unbeatable enemy. Now, Israel has gone out to meet the Philistines, and there they are encamped on this side of the brook, looking over at the Philistines. But when we take a closer look at this group, this host of Israel, this army of God's people, it is not very impressive. It may be impressive in number, but it is not impressive in its courage and in its strength. Because as Goliath is standing there mocking them and blaspheming their God, as I said, their knees are knocking. Who among them is willing to say, I will not stand for this. In the zeal of the Lord, I'll go. And by faith in the Lord, I will go. And I will take on this great enemy. No, they're not fighting at all. They're cowering in the corner. No one's volunteering. Everybody's kind of just, you know, kicking the, kicking the dirt and looking at the next guy and wondering who's going to volunteer. In fact, even their king. I mean, listen, if anybody's going to go fight Goliath, you would think it would be their king, their representative, their leader. After all, this is the king like the other nations that they had so desperately wanted. Won't Saul rise up, be the man, seize his armor and go out and fight on behalf of his people and win the day? No. No. He, like his people, is cowering in a tent, waiting to see what might possibly happen. Again, very important for us here. This is the great test. Where do you, when you read the story of David and Goliath, where do you see yourself in the story? What character are you in the story? Neil Gabler wrote a book called Life the Movie. And it's interesting. I remember reading that book years ago. And he makes the, one of the points he makes in the movie is that we all tend to view ourselves as the hero of the story. Right? When we watch a movie, we're usually the guy or the woman or whoever, the main character, that makes it all the way to the end of the story and wins the day. Like When we identify with someone in the story, we identify with that character. Right? We're, we never identify with the character that gets killed in the first scene. Right? In Saving Private Ryan, when, the, when they're, they're approaching the beaches of Normandy and the gate drops on the, the boat and the guy immediately gets shot, like nobody's like, oh, that's, you know, like, I'm done. You, know, you, you never see yourself in that character. You're always Tom Hanks. You know, you're the guy who's going to make it through to the end and do the heroic thing. And that kind of works into our stories here. It's why moral tales, why moralizing the Bible works and why moral tales work. Because in the moralizing of this story, you become David. Right? You're the main character and you need to step up when you face your giants. That's how we see ourselves in the center. But again, here's where we have to come to grips with something. And I hate to break this to you again on this beautiful Sunday morning. But brothers and sisters, you are not David in this story. You are not the hero. You are not the champion. Where are you in this story? And where am I in this story? We're in the group that's peeing their pants. We're in the group that's knocking their knees. We're in the group that recognizes. And let's face it, to their credit, they recognize I'm not going to put this on my shoulders. I'm not capable to win this battle. And there they are, paralyzed in fear. Now, where are you and I in this story? Again, this is a test for whether or not we're reading this story properly. Do you identify with them? Are you there? Do you recognize your helplessness? Do you recognize your impotence to deal with this amazing problem and this amazing enemy that's right there before you? Do you recognize that there's an enemy that you can't be in your own strength? This is why it's so important not to make the point of this story merely be like David, because frankly, you are not David. The point of this story is not be like David. The point of this story is you need a David. 
The point of this story is you need a hero. The point of the story is you need a champion who will rise up. You need a different kind of king. That king, Saul, is not going to get it done. The old Adam, I'm sorry, he leads you into slavery. You need a new Adam. You need a new king. You need a new champion who will rise up and fight for you. That's the point of the story. So that brings us to point three. We've got an unbeatable enemy. Let's come to grips with it. We've got a pretty unimpressive army. That's you and me. Which brings us to number three. We have an unexpected champion. I praise God. We have a champion, but he's an unexpected champion. Like no one immediately recognizes it. You know the story, right? The army's out there fighting and Jesse sends his son David to just bring supplies to his brothers. And David, you know, he you could tell he likes adventure. He's out there fighting the lion, fighting the bear while he's a shepherd. And he's kind of excited to go see his brothers and to bring supplies and get a little taste of battle on the front lines. He's excited about that. But when he gets there, there's no fighting going on. And he hears then this, as he calls it, I love it, sort of trash talking, you know, this uncircumcised Philistine blaspheming our God. And he goes over and he listens and he hears the blasphemies coming out of the mouth of, of, of Goliath. And he makes his way back to his brothers and he's like, guys, uh, what? I know you're going to, you must not know about this because if you could hear him talking like that, certainly you would do something about it. And how do the brothers respond? You know, they're like, you know, they get, they get angry about it. Get out, get out of here. You know, it's a, the little brother, he's the, he's the youngest of the brothers. And it's like, come on, David, get, get out of here. Right. They don't even want him to see their weakness and their paralysis in this situation. Get out of here. Go back home to your father. Go, go back to the sheep. No one's thinking, oh, good. David's here. Oh, good, a, ch a possible champion has arrived, right? There's nothing about David that immediately screams champion. In fact, if we go back to when David was anointed, back to 1 Samuel 7, I believe it is, when he's anointed by Samuel, right? Samuel shows up to anoint this new king by the hand of God. God told him, go to the house of Jesse. That's where my new king is going to come from. And when Samuel gets to the house of Jesse to anoint the new king, he asks Jesse, hey, Jesse, do you have any sons? And Jesse says, well, sure, I do. I have seven sons. Oh. And Samuel says, oh, that's great. Well, I'm here to anoint your son king. Where is he? And Samuel, of course, does what everyone would expect, brings out his oldest son, Eliab. Because, of course, the oldest son will be, if anybody's going to be king, it would be the oldest son. And so he brings Eliab to have him crown king. And Samuel's even taken in by this, like, oh, yeah, he looks like a king. And he's just about to anoint him as king. And the Lord says to Samuel, what are you doing? I have not told you this is the one. And Samuel's kind of, well, I... I and David and the Lord says, no, you look at the outside, but I look at the heart. This is not my man. I'll tell you when it's the right one. Samuel goes back to Jesse and says, he's not the one. Do you, can you bring the next son to me? So they bring the next son now. And Samuel now at least waits for the Lord. And the Lord says, no, next son, no, next son. Goes through six sons. None of them are the king. And, and Samuel goes to Jesse and he says, do you have any other sons? And Jesse says to Samuel, well, I do. He's out in the fields as a shepherd. And then he, he drops this line. He says, but he is the least of all my sons. <laughs> Not what you want your dad to say about you. He doesn't say he's the youngest one. He's the least of all my sons. He, certainly you don't mean David. And Samuel says, I think you better bring him in. This is the one that's destined to be king. The least. The unimpressive one. The shepherd boy that's out in the fields. Doesn't this remind us of what we looked at a couple weeks ago in Isaiah 53? Thinking about Jesus, he had no form or comeliness that we should be attracted to him. 
right? He was a root out of dry ground. Doesn't, there's nothing impressive about him that makes us say, oh, yes, he's the king, right? He's the one. This one's going to be our champion. And that's David, a youth. I mean, what is Saul even thinking, saying to the kid, yeah, go out and we're going to put all this on your shoulder. But there was something about David. He came with the zeal of the Lord. And he had the credentials. Don't, remember, don't forget, he says, I fought the lion. I fought the bear, right? I've got the signs to show that the Lord is with me. And David, like the Lord Jesus Christ, is zealous for the glory of God. He is bothered by the fact that this uncircumcised Philistine is blaspheming his God. And so he comes in the power of God and it angers his brothers, just like with Jesus. When this true champion shows up, it exposes the impotency of the brothers. It exposes the impotency of Saul. The fact that these men don't have the power, that they cannot get it done, and it's offensive to them, and they don't like it. And we know eventually Saul will try to kill David, even as conspiracies start to pop up around Jesus, as he comes and exposes the weakness of his age and the leaders of his age and the would-be champions and the weak army that is the people of God. And so David comes, and he puts it all on his shoulders, puts it all on the line on his on, on his very shoulders and stands to slay the unbeatable enemy. And he does, swings that, that, that slingshot around and sinks it. I love it how the story gives it such detail. Sorry to upset us on a Sunday morning, but just it just sinks right into the skull of Goliath. And Goliath, like a big oak tree, just drops down and falls. And David sloshes across the creek and pulls out his sword and lops off his head. David beats the unbeatable enemy. And isn't this the story that we just celebrated last week in the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ is our ultimate victor. This is the treasure that we must see when we come to a passage like this. On the cross and in the resurrection, Jesus has broken the enslaving power of sin, right? He died for our sins and he was raised for our justification. When he's raised, he breaks the reigning power of sin. It no longer has a hold on you. Yes, you and I can now beat sin because we do it in the power and the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can say no to sin. On the cross and in the resurrection, Jesus Christ rose up and crushed the head, fulfilling that prophecy of Genesis 3.15, written so far before as the first hint of the coming Savior and what he would do. On the cross, Jesus crushes the head of the serpent and defeats him. As Mark read in our New Testament reading, Hebrews 2, he defeated him who held us in slavery for so long to the fear of death. Jesus on the cross crushed the head of the serpent and demonstrated that victory in the resurrection from the dead. And then death. Death. I mean, what we celebrated last week. Look, I don't know whether Corona will get us, but something's going to get us. But here is the hope that we have, that death itself has been defeated. Death has lost its sting. The grave has lost its victory. When you read 1 Corinthians 15, and you get down to the end, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, grave, you know, grave, where's your victory? Death, where's your sting? Can't you hear Paul trash-talking Goliath? Trash-talking Goliath as he's laying dead now, in the face down in the muck? That's what the Apostle Paul is doing, and it's what we can do in light of the victory of Christ because our David has showed up. Our David has gone to war on our behalf, and our David has slain the great Goliath. 
He has defeated death itself, and Paul mocks death now in the light of the victory of Christ. Don't get me wrong. We need to be like David. We need to be like Jesus. Of course we do. That's a very important point. But that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is you need Jesus. Oh, you need Jesus. Because on your own, you will not defeat death. You will not defeat Satan. You will not defeat sin. But praise be to God, our champion has arrived. And he has accomplished it. Which brings me to the fourth point. So we've got an unbeatable enemy by our perspective and by our power. We've got an, a pretty unimpressive army, you and me. We've got a glorious but unexpected champion. And then fourthly and finally, now we have an unstoppable army. And I love that in this text, right? That the text doesn't end with David be, you know, having the victory. That is there, but the text goes on. So David, we know, shoots the sling right into the head of Goliath. Goliath drops like an oak tree. And then, the, uh, can you imagine what David's, bro what David's brothers are doing? I mean, when they look out and there goes David to face the champion, the, the little squirt that they were telling, hey, go home to dad. And now there's David out there one-on-one -on -one with Goliath. And then when they see Goliath fall, and then what? Goliath falls and David, not having a sword, slops across the creek pulls out this mammoth sword from Goliath and lops off the head of Goliath and holds it up. At which point, two things happen. The Philistine army, when they see their unbeatable champion fall, they head for the hills. And when Israel sees the work of their unexpected champion, and they see the head of Goliath being held up by David, probably with two hands, they take off running. And they pursue the Philistines right to Ekron. And there's bodies laying everywhere when Israel is done. And then when they chase them out and defeat them, then they return, we're told, and they plunder the camp of the Philistines. What, what happened to these men? Wow, it's like day and night. Yes, yes, yes. Like with you and me. Nothing very impressive about us. We're the least of all things, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1. We're the foolish things that God has chosen for some reason. But what do we become in the light of the victory of Jesus Christ? When we have seen our great enemy fall, when we, what we got to see and celebrate last week was death fall. What should we be on the other side of that? But an army that now goes out in courage, relentless, unstoppable, fearless. Again, I said, it sounds a little trite, so I don't like using it too much, but bulletproof in the sense that the ultimate enemy that can harm us now can't harm us. Now, I know, I know you're going to say, yeah, but we still die. Yes, but for us now, death is gain. Death transports us to glory. It is no longer something that threatens us. We have seen the great enemy fall. We have seen our champion come forth from the grave. And therefore, we may now fearlessly run after the enemy. You can take on sin today. Full on without fear, because you have the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, of course, we're weak. We confess that we still stumble. But there's no excuses now. We can go. Satan. Resist Satan, and he will flee, we're told in James. Right? What can Satan What can Satan do to me? You should shut the mouth of his accusations when he brings them to you and point to the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And death, death, I know. I know how weak we are and how easily we're afraid of death. 
but we've got to preach this sermon to ourselves. We've got to look at the story of David and Goliath and see it for what it is and see the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we do, we will then, like that you know, knee-knocking Israel, be the kind of men and women and children who fearlessly then can run after the enemy and plunder the enemy's camp. There's nothing, no barriers to us now that the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ has come to us. Sure, it's still a battle, but we attack it now in the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, I hope as we reflect upon this text that we don't miss the treasure that's here. The treasure in this text is not a moral tale. The moral tale is not false. I do encourage you to be like David when you face your giants. But the only reason you can even begin to imitate David is because the true David has come. Because he has defeated the ultimate giant. And therefore now you can be like him and run after those Philistines and head to the camp and you can fight your many little battles because the great giant has fallen. May we rejoice in that. And may we take comfort in that as we continue to reflect upon the victory that is ours in the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Let me pray as we close. Oh, Heavenly Father, we confess that we are not David. We thank you that you have not made us to be David, but that you in your grace have provided us a David. You have provided us a champion who stands in our place, who fights our battles, who slays the ultimate enemy, and then who liberates us and empowers us to go forth and to fight also in the light of his victory. Oh, Father, fill us with courage today, I pray. Guard our hearts from fear. When we talk about living accordingly to the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ, help us not on this side of the victory to live like we did on that side of the victory. Help us not to be knee-knocking, fearful people, paralyzed in our fear. Instead, Father, feed our hearts with the victory of Christ, that we might be courageous servants of yours. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.